Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And today in the show, I'm joined by Parker McDonald of the Southern Ground Hunting Podcast to discuss deer hunting in the South, accessing deer hunting spots by water, and my Alabama hunting adventure. All right. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. Today we're talking to Alabama. This is another one of my hunts that I did this past fall, working on this new series I've been telling you about, where I am traveling to a new part of the country, meeting up with a regional expert, and learning about how they do what they do. So spending a day following along with them, asking them how they hunt, how they find their spots, their different unique tactics, whatever it might be, and then going out there for three or four days myself in that area, trying to hunt on my own and get one done. So that's what I did in Alabama. Went down there to visit with Parker, who is a diehard public land deer hunting nut. He's having a lot of success in the state of Alabama and other southern states, and he's doing it by using the water to his advantage. Kayaking, canoeing, boating, whatever it takes to get to hard-to-reach areas, finding these bucks where other people can't get to them. That's what I wanted to learn about. So in December, me and the crew were able to go down there and meet up with Parker and his dad, actually, Randall, uh, for their annual rutcation. The rut down this part of the country is in December, and it seemed like we were going to hit it just right. So what we're going to discuss today with Parker and Randall on the show, we're going to discuss how that hunt went. We're going to discuss why Parker uses water, how he uses water, how he has discovered ways to discover and locate public land deer down in the south in places like this in Alabama. We're going to cover all that, a lot of good how-to stuff, but then we're going to walk through day by day how my hunt went down there, the crazy things that happened, the good times we had, the lessons I learned, and ultimately how I ended up killing a buck. So uh, there's a little teaser for you, story to come here. It's a good one. It was a lot of fun, and it was it was just great to finally get to go down get a glimpse into this southeastern deer hunting culture that I know is so rich and so many of you are a part of. Uh, I got a little look at that, a little taste of what that's all about, and uh, I sure enjoyed it. So hope you guys enjoy this one. Thank you for listening, and from here, 
Let's get to my conversation with Parker and Randall McDonald. All right. With me on the show now, we've got Parker and Reginald McDonald. Uh, <laughs> okay, not Reginald. It's Randall. But uh, our, our inside joke of the trip was giving Randall many different names. So, uh, guys, thank you for being here. <laughs> Thanks for having it's us. It's an man. honor. It, uh, it was a great time visiting you guys down in Alabama. And uh, this is a podcast I've been looking forward to. More than some, just because of uh, what a great set of stories we have and laughs we had. I mean, uh, it was just a heck of a week. So, uh, I don't know. I'm just thrilled we can do this. Wish that more of the guys from the crew could be on. But um, we'll have a we'll have a good bit of nostalgia as best as possible, the three of us, I figure. Um, so here's, here's what I wanted to do, guys. I wanted to... First, get a little background, so we'll kind of lay the groundwork for who you guys are and and why I was out there to visit you. And then we'll go through day by day our trip, what we did, what I learned, what you were teaching me, Parker, and and all the different things that happened along the way. Um, That said, what I think drew me to you, Parker... Originally, you know, I, I was I was aware of you from afar. I knew about your podcast and had seen you on, you know, Dan's videos, podcasts, all that kind of stuff. And so I knew there was this guy, Parker, and I knew you were doing two things that were particularly interesting. Number one, you were consistently killing good deer on public land in the south. And number two, you were doing it by water. You were boating, kayaking, getting to these places by river, lake, reservoir, all that kind of stuff. And that was, you know, not the most unique, but you made it like it was It was almost all of your hunts you were doing it there. Or many of them were like that. So it was really a specialty. So those two things were very intriguing to me. And, uh, and that's what I was hoping for when I came to have this hunt with you. I wanted to kind of dig into how you did that, why you do that, how that all works, and then see if I could, you know, guinea pig it and, and maybe make it work for myself. So that was... That was what intrigued me. And I'm curious, Parker, well, you know, let me take let me take one step back. Before I ask you how you came to that and how this style of hunting became your way of hunting, I wanna I wanna get your perspective, Randall. Can you tell me the story of how you saw Parker grow into the hunter he is today and doing the things he's doing today? Let's let's get the story from uh Papa McDonald's perspective. Wow. That's a, that's, that's, it's a great question. It really is. And, uh, Parker, man, I, I'm his biggest fan. Number one, I'm, of course I'm his dad and, uh, love both of my kids, uh, got a daughter as well, but Parker, there was something about him when he got into the outdoors that, that just, he, he just was attracted to it. I mean, when the other kids, uh, in Boy Scouts or, or a similar program were out doing, kids stuff when he was young he would just get by the river and catch fish until he couldn't catch any more fish i mean he just he just had that that stick to itiveness and uh and then when we got into deer hunting man <laughs> i'm i just remember his eyes and and his excitement of just being in the stand and and deer hunting there was just, he was just automatically attracted to it we've got one of our favorite pictures in the mcdonald household i mean it was just an amazing deal uh we had went in, went out hunting on a uh, guy's piece of property parker killed a little nine point buck that day and uh when he killed that buck he he went to sleep 
with that buck uh, up to his chin and <laughs> and we have that picture in our house and it it is just one of the most incredible incredible uh pictures that i've wow. got and shows his love for deer hunting that's amazing uh, so it, it, it's it's not a new thing, Parker. Huh? This thing took hold early, and it's had its claws in you ever since. <laughs> oh man! Like, um, dad, dad didn't mention this, but the first time I ever went deer hunting, uh, which which he wasn't really into it. Um, I think doing some mule deer hunts out in New Mexico when he was younger. But uh, and we were terrible at deer hunting. We were <laughs> awful. Me and my dad were awful at it. <laughs> but I got to I got good grades on a report card in my first in first grade. So I was I guess I was about seven years old, and I remember coming home. I got good grades, and Dad said, "All right, I'm taking you hunting." And we got invited to go with this guy and his son. And the first morning we were out there hunting, and it was like hill country of Texas. So if any listeners are from Texas, you know the hill country is like just loaded up with deer. There's so many deer out there, and we were in a blind and dad shot his first deer ever and i was there and uh, i remember curling up with a like a little felt blanket in the floor of that blind and the deer came out and he shot it and then later that day he shot a turkey which was you know you can fall turkey hunt in texas so he shot his first turkey and i was there for that then he uh, caught a big bass out of a stock pond and then that evening he shot an eight point and it was like this is this is amazing like this is my this is my new favorite thing ever and uh pretty much from that point on you know we were we were die hard we were in it like and i from a young age like dad said uh like most kids at this is back in the day of blockbuster um most kids were getting you know video games and you know whatever from written at blockbuster and i was getting real tree monster bucks you know and i'd rent the same video over and over and over and over again and uh or the fitzgeralds fitzgeralds were my favorite um like i, I just i don't know man it just it was always just that thing and and so whenever the story that dad's talking about that was only my second deer ever and it was my first buck and uh i mean i literally carried that uh that skull cap around everywhere um and I fell asleep with it, and that's the that's the picture he's talking about. I was just laying on the <laughs> laying on the recliner with it up underneath my chin, you know, like it's a teddy bear. Um, that's just I, I mean, I guess some people would call call that being the weird kid, but I just I was just eat up with it. I get it, I get it, man. <laughs> so so you're originally from Texas, Randall. You're still in Texas, Parker. You're in Alabama, and I guess. What I'm curious to get a little bit more from you on, and this is something we talked about while I was down there, but I think it's worth exploring a little more now is, is, is what makes hunting down there different than what I know up where I'm at? Cause I'm hunting a lot in the Midwest. I live in Michigan, of course. And when I knew that, you know, coming into this year, I wanted to experience Southern deer hunting. I wanted to kind of have a window into what all these other people are experiencing and hunting for because I get the same messages and emails all the time. Oh, yeah, this is great, but you know, it's not like what I do down here in Georgia or what I do in Texas or what I do in Alabama or what I see in so and so forth, Mississippi, Louisiana, whatever. Um, so what do you think it is? Um, maybe I'll start with you, Randall. How would you describe what makes, you know, the deer hunting and maybe public land, especially down in your neck of the woods, different or unique or or more challenging i mean what makes it stand apart in your mind from 
stuff you're seeing on TV from most places? Well, it's definitely uh, it's definitely difficult. I think you've got to know what you're doing. I don't think you're going to luck onto a buck. I mean, there's guys that do, but I just I, I, hunting in Texas, not a whole lot of public land around here. However, I have found one recently that's fairly close, and and it's uh, uh, it's it's not an easy thing to do, and 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 to, you know to kayak into some of those places and. And Parker's just kind of challenged me to expand what I've normally done. I've normally just hunted from blinds or, you know, my own property. But but I really have enjoyed getting out and really stretching myself <laughs> at 58 years old, stretching myself to try to become a better deer hunter. I've, I'm just – I just have enjoyed the sport, but I've never really tried to excel at it like Parker has. But I've been stretched, and, and Texas public land is – not not very easy nor is it easy in alabama to public land hunt i just it's it's difficult to to get out there and do it but when you've got a good teacher and having learned i know parker will say you know wired to hunt meat eater and he learned has learned so much from it and i've started watching it and trying to do new things and i'm i'm learning from it and so i'm starting to learn a little bit more about it it's not easy but it's worth it yeah so what would you add parker well, you know, I, I don't know what it is. I'm not a I'm not a biologist or a or a scientist by any means, but I have hunted um up, you know, North Dakota, I've hunted Kentucky, uh I've hunted a, a couple of states that I wouldn't necessarily consider the southeast. And I, I don't know if it's just like a soil thing, but typically our deer are not going to be as big. Uh your bucks are not going to be as huge you know uh, i would say for most people in the southeast a 150 on public land is probably going to be like a once in a lifetime type deer you're not just going to see a bunch of them um obviously with anything there's exceptions there's guys who are doing it consistently but it's just not it's not common um and and i would say up in let's just take kentucky for example i've seen multiple deer that big in my limited amount of time just hunting there for a week at a time and uh and and in north dakota you know uh i was uh, long story short i I was hunting private land and then moved on to a piece of public land and in the two days that i was at on that public land i saw a deer that was bigger than any deer i've seen in alabama all season in two days not even knowing anything about it so maybe it's a soil thing maybe it's just having you know, soybeans and crops around that uh, make it just easier or better for growing quality deer. So I think the quality is definitely lower. Um, but when you when you start talking in terms of, of quantity, uh, I don't believe that our quantity or our density of deer is as high as a lot of those places. And so, you know, I, I hear people, I have friends like yourself, Mark, who hunt uh, states like Michigan or uh, Wisconsin. I know. I know Michigan. The the hunting pressure is pretty high, and so uh, the thing that I consistently hear about Michigan hunting is that it's easy to find deer. It's hard to find mature deer. Yeah. Um. You're just not going to find a lot of them. And so I would say out here in the South, it is not easy to find mature deer, nor is it easy to just find deer in general. You know, does. You go out and you see five or six does in a sit and you've had a heck of a sit 
Um, and so, you know, you add that in with uh, just the, the, the terrain of a lot of the areas that, that like where you hunted at, the terrain can be fairly difficult. Uh, in other parts of the South, you have a ton of swamp and water that you've got to try to figure your way around it. Um, and it's just, you know, if you want to, and then add the, add the pressure aspect to it. Um, it's pretty, there's a lot of hunting pressure in just about everywhere in the South that I've ever hunted. There's tons of pressure. So you kind of have all those things working against you, which makes it, makes it relatively difficult. And I'm, I'm of the opinion, Mark, like I, I talk to a lot of people through through my podcast and just in general conversations who hunt all over the country and i you always hear people say well if you can kill a deer in michigan you can kill one anywhere if you can kill a deer in whatever louisiana then you can kill one anywhere i i think anybody who everybody likes to think that the place that they hunt is the hardest place to hunt like that's just kind of typical you see it on facebook all the time Mm -hmm. people saying that kind of stuff and I definitely don't want that to come across. You know, I think if somebody hunts in the South and they live in the South, then they have a huge advantage of being able to live there and figure it out. And so I, I never want it to come across to anybody that, you know, where I hunt's the hardest place to hunt. Because I think once you kind of figure out your system, once you figure out what works, then you stick to that and you just kind of grow based on and build based on that. But, you know, it, it definitely there are there are some different types of challenges in the Southeast versus the other places. I'm not going to say that they're greater challenges, but they're just different. Yeah. So, so why was your solution <laughs> going to the water? Like why, why was it to tackle the specific challenges of the South that you gravitated towards H2O? So for me, it was the, the only thing that I was thinking about when I first started, it was getting away from people. Um, I had hunted public land in Alabama a little bit, but not really effectively hunted it. And, uh, it, 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 long story short, I had bought this SUV. I was really into kayak fishing. So I would bass fish, bass fish for my kayak. Always had a truck to carry my, to carry my kayak and and just load it up in the back. But, uh, I bought a, an SUV and so I had to figure out a trailer for it a trailer system well i bought this big giant like ski boat trailer for my kayak and i started thinking of all these things that i could do with that i could put a rack here i could put a place to put a cooler up right here and then for whatever reason it just sparked this thought in me that was like i could put a rack here to put deer on oh heck i wonder if there's a place where i could hunt deer with water access out here close to me so i literally bought onyx that day uh here and you talk about it here and you know just the different people that I watched on YouTube or listened to on podcasts. I bought Onyx that day and started just marking all these water access places. And that's really where it started at. I was, I knew I didn't really want to hunt public land just by walking in because of all the people that were out there, but going at it by water, I would, I would be able to do a couple different things. I wouldn't have to pay for a lease anymore, which was great. Cause I was about to have my first child and uh, I didn't really have the, have the money to do it at the time. And honestly, like I was finding so much pressure on these leases that I was getting on that I was just, I was like, if I wanted to not see deer, I could just not see deer for free on public land. You know, I don't, (laughs) I don't have to pay to not see deer anymore. (laughs) 
And and I also knew this. I knew that the quality of my hunt would be largely based on not so much uh, like shooting the biggest deer that I had ever killed, but just in that beginning stage, it was like if I shoot a spike and I kayak it out, that's going to be the most like hardcore thing I've ever done in my life. And and so the quality of the hunt was based more on the experience of it and not so much the size of the the size of the animal. And so um, that was really where I started. That was kind of the the beginning of this. Uh, my wife would call it a monster, but I would call it a passion. Uh, <laughs> well, and and that's that's really where it started at. I'm glad it happened, monster or not. I'm glad it happened because uh, it's it's led to some good stuff. Um, and it led to me coming down to Alabama finally and getting to do this. Um, so okay, so I feel like you've set it up pretty nicely for me, Parker. We kind of know why you do this. In those years since, you've done it a ton. It seems like you spend every free moment. Uh, if if I've judged by nothing but your YouTube videos and Instagram, seems like you're out there all the time on public land, boating around and putting a buck in your canoe or kayak every day. It seems like sometimes, <laughs> but uh, you've you've got to figure it figured out, and and that's that's why I was coming down there. So let's get into let's get into this trip, and then as we kind of go into the the specifics, I'll kind of grill you on on some of the whys behind this. But day one. Well, I guess kind of day zero, we are arriving, meeting you at this lake, and we're going to hop in boats, move to a spot where we're going to camp, set up camp, kind of get settled for the night, and then go out and hunt together the next morning. Now, I got to ask you, both of you guys, when you were envisioning us showing up and we were going to join you guys for your your family ruckcation and we're going to camp with you and we're going to hunt with you. Uh, what did you think that was going to look like? And did, did it meet your expectations as far as what the group was like, what the group dynamic was like, what the whole thing was like, uh, Randall, what, what'd you think about it before and after? I can hear dad (laughs) laughing in the background. So I'm like, what what is he thinking right now? I gotta be honest with you. I, man, I was expecting, well, you know, I don't, I don't know how to say this. You're kind of a big deal. <laughs> and, and most of the times when I've dealt with big deal people, you get an attitude that comes with it. And, uh, because they kind of, they're sold on themselves. And, and so I kind of expected Hollywood types. I, I really was not expecting guys that were number one, nice. Um, I, I've, I've listened to your podcast, but anybody can come across on, on, you know, on a media and sound good, but man, y'all were nice and, and you were approachable and I wasn't expecting that. I I don't know about Parker, but I, I just was not expecting that. And, and then to see you put up your own tent and do your own stuff. I thought you'd have people to do that. And you, and you didn't. You had you just such did low expectations of me. <laughs> you, you had such <laughs> low expectations of me. I, I love it. It's great. You, you're impressed that I put up my own tent. I mean, I wish my wife would be impressed with that kind of stuff. <laughs> but thank you for but, saying that, Randy. But, but also, I mean, I mean, there was one point where, where and I, I've said this before, but I hope you don't mind repeat, me repeating it, but, but, uh, uh, Andreas was needing some water to wash dishes and, 
and uh and nobody volunteered and here comes mark Kenyon, and he jumps up and says i'll go get the water out of the lake and you went and did that that was probably the i i'm amazed at your deer hunting i'm amazed at your family i'm amazed that i mean you called your 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 family every night you're a family man those things man they're super impressive but you got up and went and got water and you served the camp and i i just man I don't know if Parker got that, but that's that was the highlight for me is just watching watching you serve. So that was cool. Well, thank you for saying that. Uh, I don't I don't know if I can top that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty good answer. I mean, <laughs> you know, I I definitely for me, uh, Mark, I I had you on the podcast before, so we had had some interaction and talked to you on the phone. So I I definitely didn't have any like concern of whether or not you know, you were going to be a nice guy or, or your crew was going to be great or anything. But I just, I think for me, I didn't imagine that we would have as much fun as we did. Um, you know, you get that many people and you get, you know, you guys are on a pretty strict, uh, storyline and, you know, creating the right storyline, getting all the right camera angles and, and all that stuff. But it was really just so organic. It wasn't like anything was just, you know, staged or anything like that it was it was super organic we had such a stinking good time and uh yeah i definitely would say that my expectations were um were you know not not necessarily low but it it far exceeded them we had i I found myself i know i had a good time when after the trip is over and it's done i'm like and i find myself sitting at home thinking man, I wish those guys were still here. That was such a fun time. So I, you know, I, I definitely had fun. Yeah, it was, it was great. And, and I, I asked that because it's just got to, it must, it, it was a risky thing for you guys to take on, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I, and I, I felt bad. I felt a little bad. Like we were intruding on this special family event that you guys have. And we're coming in with all this camera equipment and all these people and all this stuff. And, and I had like worries like, oh my gosh, I hope we're not imposing too much. I hope we're not going to ruin their week. I hope, uh, you know, I hope they have fun. I hope we have fun. Um, so I'm glad to hear it. It, it turned out well for everyone. And, and, you know, we showed up that first night, set up camp. And I think pretty quickly you got a sense of our sense of humor and we got a sense of yours and uh, we all jived really good. Um, <laughs> It was it was a lot of laughter on this one, but uh, so Mark, I have a question for you. Yeah, if you don't mind me. Yeah, my podcast, my podcast hostness is coming out. I love it. Um, whenever I told you that, hey, yeah, that'd be cool. My dad's a pastor; he's going to be here. Like, what were your expectations of a pastor being in a meat eater camp? <laughs> well, I I did have worries a little bit, not not like significant worries, but. We sometimes operate on like a PG thirteen level, I guess. Would say like we're we're not bad, but we're definitely PG thirteen. Um, and I just hope that at nobody... least PG thirteen. Let's yeah, okay. be honest, at least PG-13. okay, at least PG thirteen. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, I just didn't want to offend. Uh, I didn't want to offend you, Randall, or or do anything that put you in an uncomfortable situation. And so I was hoping that we'd all be on our best behavior. Um, and what ended up surprising me was, uh, you know, you're, you you. I, how do I say this without um, you were a great sport and you had a good time with us and you didn't seem to be uh, 
you know, bothered by any of the jokes, any of the fun we were having, and uh, you're just part of the crew, of course. And uh, I think I told you you're my favorite pastor, and uh, I stick to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you've been in camp with Parker, what y'all did was very mild compared to what he does. <laughs> Parker is Parker is one of the most uh, uh, lovingly sarcastic people you're ever going to meet, <laughs> and uh, I had a blast. Y'all were y'all were so much fun and. And uh, my whole deal is I didn't want anybody to to say, oh, the pastor's here. we got to calm down. No, I, I want you to be you. And uh, I thought we had a great time. It, it was it was so good. The food was unbelievable. We did. Y'all some good can food. come back any time to rutcation. Ring Andreas and cook <laughs> the food. That was good. Yes. yes. So for those who, who – Andreas hasn't been in the podcast yet. He probably needs to be in the podcast since he became such a part of my season. Um, but Andreas is the producer for my two shows I was hosting this year, one week in November and uh, this show. And the way I would describe what Andreas does and what a producer does at Mediator is you're basically an air traffic controller for everything related to these shows. So he's helping plan logistics of all sorts and types, and, and he comes on these hunts, some, some most of them now. Um, and he's just there at base camp, making sure everything's going right with the cameraman, managing all the different footage that we're compiling, managing all the different gear issues, managing camp, managing the million different things you have going on when you've got a group of five or six people trying to build out this thing. And uh, so Andreas has taken up the mantle of Camp Chef when we've been camping out for some of these hunts. He's at the camp all day while we're out hunting. That's been his thing to pick up and do, and uh, he's gotten very good at it. So Andreas gets kudos from me, and I think all of us on doing a nice job with that. Oh, yeah. And, um, and yeah, so I think I think that first night we ate before heading in. We we boated in, set up camp, and the next morning the game plan was for me to follow you, Parker, and tag along for a hunt and just see how you do everything you do and then ask you a million questions, kind of do like a podcast in person, try to learn about your whole shtick in that morning. And the first thing that stood out to me that first day was, you know, we we're getting into our kayaks. It was, I don't know, two hours before daylight or something. We're on the edge of the water and we're getting set up and it was just, it was just a cloud. We were in a cloud. There was no visibility. We could hardly see five feet in front of our faces, the fog. It was pitch black. And then this, this soupy thick fog that was just nearly impenetrable. And you start going out ahead of me. We're each in kayaks. You're in the front kayak. We've got a little trolling motor on each one and then a paddle for, you know, close close to shore work. But we were troll motoring across the main lake. And we seemed to be going, and I didn't know where we were going. I didn't know how big this place was. I didn't really have a context. It just seemed like we were going forever. And it didn't look like we were going anywhere, though. It kind of felt like I was just stuck in the same place, going nowhere, but doing it for a very, 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 very long time. And then, I don't know how long, it felt like we'd been motoring along for half an hour. It probably was 10 minutes, I don't know. But I started thinking we were spinning in circles. It started feeling like I was just, because I felt like, I remember my trolling motor was slightly turned, but we never straightened it. So it was just like constantly spinning. And I'm all of a sudden I started thinking, man, we're just going in a circle. And then my head started spinning, like literally. And I know I told you this that day or the next day or something, but I started 
getting nauseous. Like it started really thinking I was spinning around in circles and I was getting sick. And I thought if we keep going like this very much longer, I'm going to puke. Like I was right there about to. And then all of a sudden, like just as I was starting to have that feeling, all of a sudden shore came into view in the headlamps and we were, we were right there. Um, but it was bizarre. And you told me that's not, that's not an uncommon thing around there, huh? That kind of disorientation, this, the horrible fog. I mean, that's, that's a real factor. Yeah, and I don't know if it has something to do with, and I'm sure it does, has something to do with the just the weather in the south. So, like, for example, yesterday morning uh, I woke up and it was 75 degrees, and by midnight yesterday it was snowing. So wow. it's just kind of dumb. But water temperatures, when the water is warmer than it is outside or whatever, I mean, you get fog on, on water like that, and you don't ever get, like, a consistent cold. I think whenever I think that first day we were there, it was like what, like seventy degrees, something yeah, like that. Pretty, pretty warm, yeah. I mean, we were all in like early season, like September clothing and sweating. Like it was just what. So so you get that, and so when you add water to it, to it, you get this just like you said, thick thick fog on the water. And I remember the first time that I did it that way. I mean, you eventually you eventually get used to it, and you just kind of learn to navigate it, and it doesn't freak you out too much, and you know, whatever. But I remember the first time I did it, and I was like, "It's one of those. It's one of those times when every scary movie you've ever watched, you just start remembering it. You haven't thought about, hadn't thought about Poltergeist in, you know, ten years, and all of a sudden, hey, remember that scary movie you watched? <laughs> it's like, and so so you get that kind of stuff, and. Then, like, every once in a while, you'll hear beavers slap the water. You're like, freaking crap, this sucks so bad. And and like you said, you just, you're like, I, I feel like I'm just spinning around in circles. And, uh, and you, like I said, you get used to it. You start using, you know, whatever map mapping system you're using, whether it's, you know, Onyx, Spartan Forge, Hunt Stand, stuff like that, uh, and learning to navigate those those type of situations. But, yeah, I mean... I don't, I don't think I knew how serious it was for you until I listened to uh, a podcast that you did with Dan on Nine Finger Chronicles, and you were talking about, like, yeah. I almost threw up. <laughs> I was like, huh? And, and I have a bad habit of, like, it, it really is a bad habit. I tried not to, to be that way um, of, like, just going. And I, I remember looking back at one point, I was like, oh, crap, I've left I've left them behind. And so I stopped. And <laughs> And uh, it's it's hard to do when you're in the front and you don't need, you, you know, just kind of expect everybody to be following you. And you look back and it's like, oh, crap, they're 75 yards behind me. I better slow down. Yeah, because because not only did I get all kind of woozy, but then also still just getting the the feel of steering with the trolling motor and the extension on it. You know, everything's like backwards. And I yeah. kept my head just was like not. There was just so many things going on. I just couldn't get it straight in my head. And so it just took me longer to get the hang of everything that night or that morning. But uh, but I figured it out. We survived it. It was all good. Um, and that was the worst of the fog for the trip, really. There was one other day it was pretty bad, but not horrible. Um, but that brings to point two, or it brings to mind for me two things. One, you know, this was an inherent challenge of using water. Like we experienced that more. And one of the big challenges of, of depending on water to get to your spots, because, you know, if you didn't have Onyx or an app of some kind, you know, it'd be 
essentially impossible unless you just used a compass and then like followed the shoreline to get to different places. But I mean, it definitely throws a big kink in or big challenge into getting to your hunting spots when you've got to deal with fog or, you know, serious wind. Like one day we had some serious wind and I started thinking, man, I don't know if this kayak's going to make much ground at all going against those gales of wind coming down. I mean, there's a lot of challenges to it. Um, so why is it worth those challenges? I know you, you know, we kind of touched on it briefly, like get away from people, but sell me on why and how water access is so important and worth the challenges that, that, that it comes along with. Cause there are, I mean, there's, there's safety issues too. I mean, there's a bunch that comes around along with it. Why is it worth it? What makes it so, so important and what you do? Well, there's a, there's a couple different things for me. Um, like I said before, like, I, I really like the adventure and the story and the, you know, being able to tell somebody, you know, I went, you know, in the wind and rain in a kayak and I killed this buck. You know, that's a it's a cool story and a cool experience stuff that like what you've called uh, type two fun mm-hmm. is definitely it's definitely a thing. And it, and it type two fun is almost more fun in the long run than your type one fun. Right. Like. So, so there's that aspect that has almost nothing to do with strategy or anything. It's just a feeling. Um, second thing, obviously, is getting away from people, and it makes it definitely worth it. What I would rather do, I like I, it. There are not a lot of things to me that are worse than somebody uh, like a a human ruining a hunt, right? So somebody walking underneath you or whatever. Like nothing just completely destroys my confidence like that does. And, uh, and so that it makes it worth it and worth it in that regard. Um, but there are so many advantages to coming at a, a, a piece of property from water. Um, number one, let's just, let's just talk about, uh, getting busted on your, on your, uh, access. So early in the morning, you, if anybody knows anything about thermals, you know that your thermals are pulling down usually if it's dark outside. So when you're coming from water, your thermals are absolutely drawn to that water. And so any deer that is on land, as long as you, as long as they don't like, if they don't see you or or hear you or whatever, if you're not like super close to them, you're not going to spook them um, because they're not going to catch your wind because your, your thermals are just pulling down to the water. Uh, The second thing is, is, most of the time, the deer don't associate that water with danger. There's people fishing. Like I said, there's beavers making all kinds of racket. There's ducks making noise. I mean, fish jumping. Any type of splashing or anything like that, it's just not a it's not a spook to them like, you know, like a, a briar catching onto a, to your hoodie and making a loud racket. That spooks them because they associate that with danger. But... When you're coming at them from water, I mean, they're used to noise in those type of areas like that. And so they don't associate it with danger. And I think for me, that has turned out to be one of the biggest advantages that I wasn't even thinking about earlier on. Um, and it like I can access a piece of a piece of land. And just for example, the, I had a, a hunt let's, uh, probably in October. It was in October. And I drug my kayak to a uh, like across a piece of property apart drug it across making all kinds of noise and literally just 
kayaked right across a slough to another piece of property that was only ac- accessible by water. Like you would, I would have had to do do it that way. And I shot a deer at daylight. I mean, I made all kinds of noise getting that kayak drug across the land that was only maybe a hundred yards away. And literally, when I stepped my step foot on the land and walked, like I think I walked like ten yards, there was a deer standing there, and I shined his eyes, and it was it had been standing there the whole time I was making all that racket. And to me, that just proves like, you know, the deer aren't expecting any type of danger coming from the water. Now they will get conditioned to expect it in certain spots if you're you know over hunting a spot or whatever. But by and large, I find all over the country that coming coming at any animal from water turkeys are the same way i mean uh i've literally paddled right underneath a turkey on a river that was roosted and got set up on him you know later that morning before he flew down so i mean it's i I just think for a lot of wildlife and then you have you have just the idea that uh wildlife is drawn to water because they need it to survive so your your densities are going to be a lot better close to water because they're just they're just drawn to it so then what about how you're getting across that water? I know you've, you've used a number of different types of vessels to use, you know, to get water access to spots. We used kayaks for some of the time. You had a boat for some of it. Uh, can you walk me through like how you make your choices? What's the ideal setup? What are the different types of boats or vessels you like to use? Kind of give me the scoop on all that. Well, it's like anything, man. It's, it's a, you kind of want to have every tool for every job. And I recently just bought a new boat. Uh, last week I bought a boat because I, the kayak is so sexy, man. I mean, like there's, there's not a lot of cooler pictures to me than a, a buck laid on front of a kayak, but there's also some efficiency issues with a kayak. When you're talking about some spots that might be five miles away from the nearest spot you could put in. And so like I was finding that, my effectiveness while, while I, I am a, a try to grind as hard as I possibly can, like I would be getting up at one, one o'clock in the morning to get out there and be on the water by three so that I could get to a spot before daylight. And I mean, that wears on you. Whereas with a boat, you really, I mean, when you got a, you know, a decent sized boat, you can get into a spot and in just a matter of minutes compared to hours with a kayak. But, I have many spots. I mean, a spot that I killed um, two of my Alabama bucks at this year where I couldn't use a boat. I wouldn't be able to get a boat back in there. Um, it's just too big. And and it's not. It's also not a far trip in a kayak. So I can get from where I put in at from the launch to the spot. I can be there within a few minutes in a kayak just paddling. So uh, it's better for that. And uh, I've... I've hunted places in uh, in Kentucky where you really, I mean, it wouldn't be worth the trouble of, of hauling a boat because it's the water, it's skinny water. And so I think there's, I think there's different reasons. Uh, I, one of the eye-opening things to me this year, uh, I was hunting in Kentucky and I was using my kayak to access a place. I shot a big buck um, at like 11 o'clock that morning and the the deer just didn't bleed it was a great shot deer just didn't bleed and i was calling dogs i searched for a little bit myself and decided a dog would be the best option i was calling dogs and nobody wanted to 
come and try to figure out a way to get their dog on a kayak and all that crap. And so if I would have had a boat, there's not a doubt in my mind I would have recovered that deer, but I never found it because I was, I was limited to just me being there by myself. And, uh, if I would have had a, have a, had a bigger vessel, I could have, you know, got a dog in there and recovered the deer. And so, and, and it was also completely accessible by boat. I didn't need a kayak. That was just the only craft that I had at the time. So I think, uh, I think, like I said before, there's, there's different, uh, you want to have a tool for every job. And so I have both now, which is, uh, going to be great. I can't wait to get that boat out there and use that more. Yeah. So given your experience with boats and kayaks, is there any advice you'd give people if they're trying to get into this as far as style of boat or kayak or accessories or, you know, any of the customizations or things you've kind of tweaked over the years, anything on that front worth noting? I would definitely say to, to anybody wanting to get into it, um, a kayak is going to be kayak or canoe, whatever. I, I chose the best of both worlds and got a new canoe kayak, which is basically a hybrid. And it's got like an over 600 pound weight capacity on the, the unlimited and the frontier 12 version. So you have plenty of weight capacity, you got lots of space. It's a really, really good boat. You can put a trolling motor on it. You can put a small outboard motor on it. When you're talking about versatility, that is like the most versatile thing. So I would buy that first before I bought a boat because with a boat, you're still going to be limited to a launch, you know, having an actual boat ramp that you can put it in at. With a kayak, you can just drag it and go. And uh, it, it may be more work in some places. You know, like I said, for five years now, I've been waking up at 1.30 and going doing it that way but it still worked it was still effective i'm just trying to be a little bit more effective by having both of those so i would highly recommend a new canoe frontier 12 or unlimited um as far as versatility goes and then you just kind of grow from there like I, I, I like i said the kayak is super sexy but like I'm tired of waking up at 1:30 every time I want to go five miles away from the from the ramp. So I don't blame you. Um, so yeah, I would I would definitely say that that's a, a a great tool to have is and and if you can't afford a new canoe, a kayak is still going to be a, a kayak or a canoe is still going to be about the most versatile one because I mean it is still going to be possible for you to, if you want to kayak 15 miles. It's possible, right? It might not be yeah. fun and it might be hard work, but it's still possible. So I would I would get something like that that you can put anywhere you want. Yeah. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. 
The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Randall, you've you've used some of these access tools now as well since Parker's been getting into it from a, I mean, Parker, you're, you're a young guy who's kind of crazy, but from a dad perspective, Randall, would you, would you add anything else? Is there anything for people, you know, a little older than Parker and me, if they're thinking, man, I don't know if this is just a young man's game or not. I mean, you've done it successfully too, right? Right. I, I really have enjoyed the, the kayak uh, ability. I, I mean, yes, I love having the buddy heater in my in my tall blind and be able to crawl up there <laughs> and just enjoy the hunt. That's great. It's fun. I do that on my land, but but man, I tell you, one of the funnest hunts I had was last year at Rutcation. Uh, and I think I think it's on Parker's YouTube channel. But man, I I I had a spike come in and and I got to first of all shoot the spike out of my tree saddle so that was kind of cool i've never done that and then uh uh got to kayak it out with my my new canoe and i'm a big guy okay i mean i'm wide (laughs) (laughs) i uh i'm i'm a wide fella and uh, that that kayak and that deer out of that place was just it it's a memory i will always have uh, I didn't, I mean, I loved the paddling out. It didn't really matter how far back in we were. I, I had my, my little trolling motor, but I really enjoyed just paddling it out of there. So it, I don't think that really matters how old you are. That, that was such a high in my life and it was a spike, but you would have thought it was a 150 class buck. I mean, I, <laughs> I really enjoyed that. And so yeah, it's it's great in a boat. I've I've taken my boat out to Alabama and we've done that, but there was just something a little more special about the kayak. It just uh, it just is a great experience. Yeah, well, I can attest from from my time out there. There's definitely something special about that. I could I could see it too. So that brings that brings me then to the next piece of this though, which is okay. We know we got to use water. That's going to get us away from people. That's going to give us better access. But the next thing that I think a lot of people struggle with and that I certainly was curious about when I was looking at maps of this area was how the heck do you find a deer? How do you find deer in these big, vast, big woods, 
tracts of public land where, you know, I mean, without knowing anything else, you could say, well, it could be anywhere out here. Um, that first morning, Parker, we headed straight across the lake, went up a ridge, got up top in a spot where you said there were a few things all coming together that you liked, and we, we hunted there. Could you talk to me about, A, why was that spot good, but then in general, you know, what are the things you look for in this kind of terrain in Alabama to find deer on public land? Well, that spot is a, such a good example, and I, that's why I think it, it worked out perfectly for that first day is because that spot is where I killed probably the biggest deer I've killed in Alabama. Uh, not probably, definitely the biggest deer I've ever killed in Alabama. And it really kind of opened my eyes to a lot of a lot of different factors. And, and it wasn't necessarily that uh, I, I hunted that spot for that reason, but it, it was really like maybe the first time where it came together for a, a big mature deer. And... Um, just just a breakdown of that area. So uh, where we're hunting is big woods, you know, ridges, fairly steep, not too terribly tall, but pretty steep stuff. Um, mostly big woods, though. And I, I think it's easy for people to get intimidated when they look at a map of big woods type areas because there's not like there's not soybean fields and ag that you can really pinpoint there's not corners like that that you can pinpoint or funnels or anything like that so um the thing that i've kind of developed for myself is this uh um common denominator type uh mentality of if everything if if i find a spot on a map that shares all the different things that i'm looking for then i'm not even scared to go in there blind on a morning hunt because what I've found is if, a, if an area offers all these different things, more than likely it's going to have deer. I've been to very few of these places that I just found nothing. And so that's kind of up my odds a little bit. And those, uh, and, I, and I didn't coin this phrase. Another guy that I had on my podcast named Matt Powell um, brought this up whenever I was asking him, how's he getting all these big bucks in a bow range? He said, well, X marks the spot. And so when you think of, uh, you think of an X, right? Like everybody can make an X with their, with their fingers. If you can imagine, uh, a different habitat type in each one of those negative spaces and each one of those points of the X. So as many different habitat types as you can find coming together, if you can get right in the middle of that, that's a lot of times going to be where, where the deer are going to end up at. So that by itself is great, but then you add uh, some type of terrain feature like a ditch or a saddle or a bench or something, some type of terrain feature that we know that deer use. If you can put that to where it's either in close proximity or right on where all those habitat types meet, then you've just up your odds even more because we know that deer like to use those type of terrain features by themselves. And so that's been able to help me just really eliminate entire chunks of big woods public land um if because if it doesn't have that then there's a good chance i'm probably not ever even going to go in there unless it has that those things those common denominators and it ups your odds significantly i think you know you you found that out and um you know when you when you're talking about alabama and and maybe lower deer densities or maybe it's not lower deer densities but just a lot of monotonous type habitat and you're trying to key in on 
you know, a pocket of deer, then that's been the, the greatest thing. And so all of the, uh, once I, once I started kind of figuring that out, this specific spot, um, where me and me and you went, where I thought I could explain it the best, there was, uh, uh, on the public land side, there was just hardwoods, but then the property line on the property line, there was a clear cut and then there was a bunch of pines. And so you have a three way transition right there that you can watch and then going right up into where all those habitat types come together, there's a very subtle, like when I say subtle, I mean very subtle um, uh, ditch that goes right up into those pines. And man, I the deer that the buck that I shot in there a couple of years back, he was just he walked right out of that three-way transition, walk in that ditch, go into his bedding, overlooking the water, and. Um, I find with water access, you you, you typically are going to be – deer like to bed close to water because it offers a lot of thermal advantage to them in the day where those thermals are rising up and the wind's going up over them. Also, like I mentioned before, the water doesn't really pose a threat to them, and so they'll bed close by it because it's just a, a less chance of being in any type of danger uh, coming from the water. So – um, yeah, all those factors start to add together and you've come up with, you know, you may not have just, you may be looking at a thousand acres and there's only three spots that you could potentially hunt on those, on that thousand acres. But I mean, it really starts narrowing down places to where it's not nearly as intimidating. Yeah. I, I found that to be the case too. It was, it was easy for me to narrow things down when you, you kind of broke down the two or three most important things for me. I remember after that first day, we, we sat in that spot you described. We both got up there in the tree. We sat up there for the morning, didn't end up seeing any deer, but uh, you know, had a good amount of time there just to talk through all your different ideas and what you do and how these deer in the South act and behave and how they handle hunting pressure and all that stuff. And when we got done with that, I kind of got to think, like, what are the biggest takeaways here? And it's like, number one, you know, find that convergence of habitat types that you described that X marks the spot thing. That was key. And then number two, use the water to get to places like that, that nobody else can get to. And as you described, there's not that many spots that check those two boxes. So I remember telling you, all right, Parker, so I just got to find where the X marks the spot. Got to make sure I use the water to get away from where other people can get to. And then that's it, right? And then you said, well, there's one more thing. Then there's time. You got to go. You got to find these places. You got to get to those hard to find places. And then you got to give it time. And if you do that, it'll, you know, opportunities will rise. Um, was there anything else? Like when we, when I parted ways with you after that morning hunt and I started going off and hunt on my own, was there anything else that you thought in your mind? Like, man, I wish I'd told them this, or I forgot to talk about this, or there's something else that's important that we cover you know, anything else people need to know to get the basics of finding and hunting deer in this country? I think you hit on probably the last thing that I didn't feel like I spent much time talking about, but that was the time and and the conditions, right? So anybody can go into these spots with a wind, a crappy wind, and not see anything. You know, I've dealt with that this year of people who have watched some of my videos and figured out the spots that I hunt. And they're going in there, and I mean, just as an example, I went out there one day, and there was a guy hunting a spot that was on one of my videos, but the wind couldn't have been worse for that specific area. 
And so automatically I'm like, well, he's not going to kill a deer there. Uh, so I don't really don't have much to worry about. He's not going to, he's not going to do much other than educate the deer, you know, that are in some of those bedding areas. But, um, you have to go in and I don't think I'm saying anything that most hardcore deer hunters don't already know, but if the wind's not right, then this, it can be the best spot in the world. You're not going to see anything. You're going to just, all you're going to do is educate. And so making sure you put in the right amount of time and making sure that you're in there when the conditions are right, that is, uh, that's perhaps the greatest thing that anybody can do. You can go into a, a spot, um, uh, you know, a hundred yards off the road on public land that may be getting pounded. And if you sit there every single day of the season, you might kill a buck, right? Like you might, there's a, there's a decent chance that you're going to, uh, just because you put in the amount of time. I find that the most, the people who kill the best deer and are the most consistent are the ones who are out there the most. So, I mean, take that for what it's worth. You know, I think that might be the most important tactic that anybody can, can, uh, put into practice is just go as much as you can but in the right places and in the right places at the right times for those places right sure and and i i I, yes that will i think that will increase your odds for sure like i want to be a i want to be effective and efficient and so i'm going to go into the right places for the you know it's going to take i think if you're in the right places it's going to take significantly less time yeah um I, I think what I'm saying is, is like, so out here, nobody, nobody really hunts the green fields on the WMAs because everybody hunts the green fields. <laughs> um, but I know a guy out here that the biggest buck he ever killed was on one of those green fields, um, on, on one of the WMAs. He killed a 160 inch deer on public land in Alabama off one of the green fields because he was just kind of there at the right time. So I think all these spots everywhere can produce if you sit there enough, but your, your efficiency is going to go up. Like for me and you, Mark, you had four days to go out there and, and make something happen. We're going to do the thing that I feel like is the most efficient, not just something that eventually it'll maybe produce something. We're going to do the thing that's going to, that I feel like is going to produce the quickest. Yeah. Speaking of being on, you know, short time frame too, four days, Brand new place, hunting in a new area, new style of hunting. You and me are sitting in that tree still that first morning. I remember asking you, Parker, like, what's a realistic, what what is realistic for me to get a stab at out here? You know, I kind of wanted your perspective on how I might be thinking about my goals or standards for this trip. You want to kind of recap for me what you were thinking when it came to, you know, how I should be thinking about my decisions to target deer or not. I remember, you know, when we first started talking, I was like, man, will I see a two-year-old buck, a three-year-old buck? Should I shoot the first deer I see? I really had no idea what was out there. Um, what was, t- give me a lowdown again of what your thoughts were on that. So we were, I think we were talking on the phone. We were either texting or talking on the phone. I can't remember, but you had said, uh, Hey man, listen, this, uh, this whole deer culture thing is turning out to be a lot harder than I anticipated. Uh, going into new places and trying to kill a deer and so you know maybe what do you think what do you think I should shoot and I said well here's an example I would be pissed if my dad didn't shoot the first buck that he saw when he comes down like to me that's 
if you can come as a non-resident to the south, especially in in some of the places that I hunt, if you can come out there and you can shoot a buck, like that's a big accomplishment. When when you're not from here, you don't have the time invested and you're just trying to trying to shoot a deer, like that's to me that's a huge accomplishment. Um I think I mentioned it before when I was in Nebraska or not Nebraska in North Dakota earlier this season i went out and like the second day on that public land area that i was hunting i saw a a giant buck that's just not realistic out here um and so i think whenever you when you when you said originally like you know a three a three-year-old or a two-year-old would be like your cutoff i was like "Mm," you know that that might not be a super realistic expectation uh it's definitely possible but may not be realistic for what you might see. And I gave you the example, Mark, that I had hunted probably close to five days a week from October 1st through Thanksgiving and saw two bucks in that entire time period. And I <laughs> I consider myself to be somebody who knows the areas well that I'm hunting, and I'm fairly effective in these areas that I'm hunting. But I saw a spike and I saw a six-point, like a basket rack, tiny six-point. Um, and, and that was from October through November through, through, I mean, almost two months of hunting a lot. And so obviously you were there during the rut. So things would, I felt like you had a good chance of being able to see a buck, but being able to see a big buck, that's just a hard, that's just a, it's just, it's just hard. I mean, I think hunting mature deer, anything over three and a half, three and a half and older is, is, uh. A very very difficult thing to do even in the place that you live let alone it being a place that you've never been to before um so yeah i think that's kind of where my when you said like hey i might be willing to shoot something a little bit younger uh i, I know i lit up because i was like oh yeah we're gonna make this happen now <laughs> this is gonna work out <laughs> you basically said man you better let it fly <laughs> and um when you when you told me that you'd seen only two bucks since october that's when i was like okay I got a better idea of what we're dealing with here, and and I also was thinking about. You talked about one thing that stuck with me. You had said uh, after we got done with that morning hunt and we were about to go boat away from the shoreline, and you said, you know, a lot of guys have that moment, like that really special moment for them is when they walk up to a buck they just killed and they finally get to see it and put their hands on. He said, well, that's not the moment on this kind of hunt. The moment on this kind of hunt is when you get that deer in the kayak and you're floating across the lake or the river or whatever and you're just paddling along and you get to kick back and look up at the sky and look at the water and the waves lapping up against your boat and the buck out there in front of you and you just soak that all in. That's the moment. And I remember thinking, I want that moment. I don't care if it's a four-year-old or a one-year-old or a 150-inch buck or an 80-inch buck. I want that moment to kind of get the whole experience. And that's when I decided, you know what, yeah, if I can get a buck, I'm going to be pretty darn tickled. And uh, so that ended up being the goal was just if you see if you see antlers, you're uh, you're letting it rip. And uh, oh yeah, that was the game plan. That moment is is unbeatable to me. And um, you know, it. I have found like like what my dad said earlier. Even if I have a motor hooked up, if I shoot a deer, I'll just float out and I'll take my time. I'll take pictures, you know, call people, call my friends, you know, my hunting buddies, call dad. You know, I just, that's the time for me. That's like, 
that's that's it like i just i soak it up man and it it really ticks me off when i have somewhere that i have to be and i just like <laughs> just decided like i'm gonna get a quick hunt in right here and it really ticks me off when i'm successful on those quick hunts like that because you don't get to really soak in that moment uh nearly as much and so that kind of sucks whenever you're successful on those type of hunts but when you don't have anywhere to be and you just you know, wife's not expecting you home until dark, and you can just really just take your time. It's just, man, there's there's not much like it. Yeah, that that seems hard to beat. And, uh, man, that's what I was shooting for. That's what I was hoping I was getting to experience. And uh, I guess for the sake of speeding things up, I'll start moving us a little bit more through what happened from there. Because we hunted that morning, went back to camp, made a game plan for what I was going to do after that. And then we, we separated and you were going to go hunt and your dad was going to go hunt and I was going to go hunt and we're all going to go different directions. And that first evening I decided to go in the same general direction as where we hunted the first day um, or the first morning, but kind of the other side of it and uh, explore some different terrain that looked like there was one of these convergences of kind of a cutting and some pine plantation stuff and then maybe some kind of field or old food plot on a neighboring private piece. I thought maybe that'd look good with some ridges pinching into it. Um, long story short on that one is I walked up in there, boated across, walked up in there, kind of scouted my way up to that area and didn't find much. Found a couple little rubs and sat for the last part of the night. Didn't see any deer. Um, wasn't blown away with anything. The next morning... I was going to go back to the same general area um, because I did find a little zone that I thought, man, it might be worth giving it one good morning hunt. And you told me that for whatever reason, mornings are a lot better out there and there was some weather pushing through. So I thought it could be decent. So I thought I'll go back to that spot in the morning and then scout and find my way to something new for the afternoon. But we woke up that morning and same as what the forecast had been, there was a big storm blowing through in the chop. I mean, the wind pushing down the lake was was more than I was expecting. And I remember thinking, man, is this kayak even going to be able to make it up here? Cause I was going to have to go right into the wind across the main body of water. And it just seemed like that was going to be quite an endeavor. And I can't remember if it was you Parker or Randall. One of the two of you was like, man, I don't know if you want to try to do that in that, in that kayak. It might be easier. Just go with the wind, go to this other general area. It looks pretty good. Try that. Um, I don't know who told me that, but whoever it was, that was enough to kind of push me in that direction. And um, that's what I did. We ended up going to a totally different area. Basically, this was a spot. You, We kind of looked at the maps together, Parker, as you probably remember, and you said, hey, this is a decent general area. You know, there's a couple of good terrain features that you might like, and, you know, this is where you'd want to take your boat into. And then from there you can figure it out. And so I took my boat up this little slough, parked at the bottom of this little finger, and then worked my way up a point before daylight. And I got up on top of this point and on the map, you can kind of see that this looked like, um, like a big half circle with a bunch of points coming off of this. I almost think of it like a horseshoe, like an upside down horseshoe ridge with little spur points dropping off into the bowl. So it was a little bit of an amphitheater. And I was on a point that was right in the middle of this bowl looking down it. And then there were several other points that all converged right down beneath me, like a, like a reverse turkey foot almost. And I thought, all right, well, if bucks are cruising, right, this is the rut out there in southern or wherever in Alabama we were, it was a late rut. 
December rut. So these bucks should be cruising. If they're trying to get from point A to point B, a lot of different point A's and B's, they, many of them might funnel down through this little convergence of these different points coming down. So I thought, hey, this has got potential. So decided to sit there and see what would happen. Big old storm came pushing through. I forgot to bring any kind of, I brought my rain gear, but the camera guys had brought little tree umbrellas that they set up above their trees. <laughs> so we were all sitting on the ground. There's me and two cameramen. They all had these little umbrellas over them. I had nothing. So I just kind of curled up in a ball and tightened down all my rain gear and just got pummeled for, I don't know how many hours, several, two, three hours or something like that of just, I mean, a pretty darn serious storm. I mean, that sucker came through hard and heavy and just dumped on us thunder and lightning and and i was just sitting there trying to survive it um i, I don't remember where you guys were at that point i i don't know what i don't know what your hunting experience was but <laughs> we were I, I believe we were in town eating we, pancakes we were there yeah <laughs> we did not go hunt that morning you no, weren't you I, weren't missing i out. think i i woke up to a loud crack of thunder that was literally like it lit up the sky, right? Like lit up our whole tent. And I look over at dad and he kind of gave me that look like, I'm not scared, but that was kind of (laughs) scary. And, uh, and, uh, I texted you. I said, Hey, uh, you guys alive. And then I didn't get anything back for like two hours. So (laughs) y'all, like y'all could have been dead and we just never would have known. But, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we did. We definitely didn't hunt that day. Yeah, for, we, we props to you guys for going out that morning because we were kind of like, nah, don't really want to do that. It wasn't the most fun I've ever had, but it wasn't the worst, I guess. Uh, we 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 sat out through the storm and it actually almost worked out for me because I don't know a couple hours into the storm, the rain was still coming down pretty good, but the thunder and lightning had passed, and I was just like rain and wind, and I remember looking down the point and all of a sudden seeing a deer running down one of these one of these kind of spur ridges dropping down in the bottom so i'm you know dylan dylan buck coming down buck coming down and one of the cameramen was actually off going to the bathroom somewhere so it was just me and dylan and this deer comes tearing down to the bottom i pull up my binos look down on the bottom and it's you know pouring rain and windy so it's hard to see but i could see like i'm pretty sure that's a buck and so that buck gets down to the bottom. He's probably 200 yards away, something like that. And he's now running up the opposite side and he's, he's really moving. It's not like he's, he wasn't like spooked running, but he was like trotting along. And so I remember grabbing my gun, pulling off the scope covers and then thinking to myself, man, if he comes up this point on the left side of me, I'll be able to see him, but I got to move. I got to move. So I, I kind of crab walked like four or five yards to the left. So I'd have a better view. And now I'm thinking, okay, if he comes up this, this ridge, it will be, you know, within view. And I think I'd range in the past. The farthest I could see was about 155 yards. And this is a, this is a gun hunt. So I could shoot, you know, out that far. And I remember thinking if he comes anywhere along the front side of this ridge, I've got a shot. Well, he didn't come on the front. He came right on the top and kind of just over the other side. So there was moments where I'm trying to pick him out in between you know, thick woods. I'm trying to pick him out. I'd see him for a moment and then he'd be gone. And then I'd see him for a moment in my scope, but he'd be too far on the other side of the ridge. So I'd just see his head in the top of his back. And then he'd be on my side for half a second. And there just was never a moment when I could clearly see him in my scope and his vitals at the same time as he's just like cruising fast in this rain and wind and my scopes, you know, wet and foggy and all that stuff. And it was just like all that stuff made for a chaotic, 
don't know how long it was, 30 seconds or something as this buck was running through there. Um, but it was enough to at least get my blood pumping. I saw my first buck of the trip, first deer of the trip, I guess, and, you know, made that stormy, nasty sit a lot more palatable. Um, we were all excited. And um, the rain eventually let up after that. And I don't know, I think we sat there till like one o'clock. And then at one, I got to thinking, man, we've seen that one deer. We've been here for, I don't know, seven hours or something. Um, I've yet to see anything else around here. I hate to put too much time in a spot like this without, you know, having gotten a sense of what's around me. And so I decided, you know, what, I'm going to take advantage of this wet leaf cover we have now in the wind and do a quick scout. I thought, all right, I'll do a midday scouting session. I'll make a loop, look at some stuff that I'm interested in on the map and either confirm that yes i'm in the best spot and come back here or if i find something new along the way you know then i can hunt that i I just wanted to learn i didn't want to be hunting blind so looked at my map and found a couple different spots where it looked like there were these edges that we talked about coming together i remember seeing there was a spot where there was a hard line of pines you could see like planted pines i didn't know how old or young i didn't know if it was thick or mature but i knew like there was pines meeting mixed hardwoods. So that was an edge of interest. I saw another spot where there looked like thick brush. Like maybe there'd been some past clear cuts or something there. This was like thicker, nasty stuff that butted up against the hardwoods. And then I found two other spots like that. So I thought, all right, I'll circle up to the pine edge. From there, I'll take that edge to where it connects with this brushy looking stuff. And then from there, I'll circle south to what looks like something else kind of along those lines. I just didn't know if this was like shrubby stuff or if this was trees. I didn't know how old these cuts were. I didn't know how old the arrow imagery was. Um, so that's my kind of game plan for that loop. So we worked our way up, got to the mature pine edge and saw that it was not too mature. Like it wasn't big, hard it wasn't like big old pines. These were, I don't know what the age would be, 15 years old, maybe something like that. Enough that you couldn't walk through them easily. You couldn't see through them easily. It was, they were tight. It was thick. It was low, like good bedding. And I'm thinking, man, okay, this is, this is a good thing. Found a couple of rubs right along that edge, kept working that edge another quarter mile or something like that. And then I got to something that didn't show up on the map. I got to here and there was a ridge coming up to that hard pine edge, but then where that ridge connected with the hard pine ridge or sorry, hard pine edge was a clear cut on the neighboring private land, like a big old open clear cut where they cut it probably the year prior. I'd say this was like a one year old clear cut. So you could see across it. There was a lot of like low brushy cover, um, but you know, nothing over waist high probably. So there's this big open brushy, I assume there'd be you know, some good food out there. Now you've got this very distinct edge between the pines and that. There's a distinct edge between that and the hardwoods that I was walking along the line of. Then there's this spur ridge that's coming into that. So you've got that terrain feature. And then I got to the top of that ridge. And on the other side of it was one of those older cuts that I'd seen on the map. And that was like a, I don't know, five-year-old, 10-year-old cut of some kind where really shrubby, brushy, nasty stuff and some like young pines that were, you know, I don't know, a little overhead high, that kind of stuff, like really thick, nasty. So you've got four, one, two, yeah, basically four different terrain or kind of cover types all converging right where these two ridges came together too. And I'm like, man, this is like bing, bang, boom. This is an absolute perfect example of that X marks the spot type situation you were describing Parker and then 
as I'm seeing these things and identifying these things as I'm walking along, I'm seeing, oh, there's a rub, there's a rub, there's a scrape. And I hadn't seen any sign almost anywhere else the, the whole the whole rest of the time I've been out there, right? And now all of a sudden where these edges all come together, here's all this sign popping up. And I did a little circle around there a little bit more just to check things out. Found I ended up finding like 15 scrapes in this general zone, six or seven rubs. And all right, then I said, okay, this is by far the best thing I've seen as I've walked all around here. Um, this has everything that I think should pull deer in here. And I'm not at this point, I, you know, as I described, wasn't trying to kill a big giant buck. So it wasn't like I was looking for a huge track or monster rub or something like that. This is simply like, is this the kind of place that deer would likely be moving through? There's a lot of different edges coming together. It's the rut. Would a buck be passing through here? I sure as heck would think so. You've got a couple spots that probably could be doe bedding. There's a couple spots where there might be deer feeding. There's all these edges that are probably travel corridors, possible pinch points with those terrain features. I was sold. So sat there that afternoon, didn't see a deer, but that was okay. I figured, um, I figured it was worth coming back to the next morning. So that was day two. The next day, the next day was the third day of our trip, not counting our first night. Boated back there, me and my two cameramen, Dylan and Bob, we slipped up this our initial ridge, we, we accessed by the same route we did the first day. So we boated down that slough, came up this ridge, circled around up this little draw to get to the ridge where I was sitting the first night, or sorry, that, that second night. Get set up. Again, we're just sitting on the ground. And this is probably worth noting. This is something that, you know, you had talked, Parker, about how you often like to hunt in a saddle, like to get up high. And so I brought my saddle, I brought my climbing sticks, and I thought, yeah, I, mean, I very well might do that. But as I started like seeing the area and getting a sense of it and knowing that I had a gun, I ended up making the decision that I would prefer to hunt from the ground because what it did for me, at least in this early exploratory phase was it gave me the, the ability to quickly adjust, right? I mean, in a moment's time I could adjust because when you're going up in this with sticks in a saddle, even though that's more mobile than any other tree, you know, tree stand type hunt, that's as mobile as you can get. It's still quite an investment of time and energy. Not to mention when you've got two other guys that need to get up in a tree with camera gear too. And I knew that if we made the investment in time to get up in a tree like that, we're kind of stuck there. You know, it's hard to get out of that situation and make a bunch of moves. Um, I imagine if we had done that that first day, it would have been a lot harder decision to pull everything down and go scout midday, you know? So with a gun, I knew like I've got more range. I, I'm not so worried about a deer seeing me beforehand because I'm not setting myself up right on top of where I think they're going to travel. I wasn't setting up 20 yards from those edges. I was setting up 100 yards from those edges. So I would see any deer well before it would see me, hopefully. I have the range to get a shot at it, and I preserved the ability to make any little adjustment I needed. I could stand up and shoot. I could stand up and walk 10 yards and get in the better shot. You know, I could do anything like that, and that ended up being... Super helpful. I mean, I had to do that during the storm buck encounter. I had to make a five yard move to get, you know, even to be able to see this deer. Now that midday, I got up, scouted, found a new area. That first morning, now in this location I'm describing, we all sat down against trees up on this ridge. We can see down to where all these edges come together. And about 45 minutes, an hour after daylight, here comes a buck working right along that hard pine edge. 
that thick, nasty pine edge. I remember seeing the buck. I stood up. I tried to get my gun rested against the side of the tree. It was, that first buck was like a little forky, I think. But then like right behind it, there was a bigger buck, like a six-pointer. If it had brow, I, can't, I could never see if it had brow ten. So it might have been an eight. Uh, it might have been a two-year-old, possibly. But I remember thinking, all right, I'm going to take a crack at this buck. The first one I would have. And then when I saw the second one, I was like, okay, I'm going to try to get a shot this second buck. But from where I was sitting, and at this point standing, they were visible for just like a couple seconds dropping down into this bottom. And then they disappeared the hill, disappeared behind the hill as they were coming up my ridge. And the problem that I didn't realize at the time was that as soon as they would get to the top of the ridge where I'd be able to shoot at them, they were behind these thick, nasty pines and only popped out for like a split second before going further into the cover. They didn't walk on the outside of this. This is going to be hard to describe, but as I, as I mentioned, there was like the, the first pine edge and then there's the clear cut and then there's like the newer, um, the newer pines. They were traversing the edge of the old pines and then coming across to the new pines. But instead of going on the outside edge of the new pines, they went right into them and were like five yards into them. And I couldn't shoot through that. There's just so much junk. So that first buck popped through and, you know, was out of my view before even really having a chance to range him or get any idea if I could get a shot. But I knew like, okay, that's where the next buck's probably going to pop up. So I just put my scope there and was waiting. And sure enough, he popped out. But I mean, he was in and out of my opening in a moment before I'd even have a chance to get the scope on him clearly, get a good idea if it was a good shot, anything like that. So he was in and out of my life very quickly and was in that brush. And you could still see his antlers moving around. You could see him, but not any kind of clear shot opportunity. And then they disappeared. So that was that. It was great that I saw these two bucks. I was excited, but disappointed that couldn't get a crack at him. Now I've seen three different bucks on public land that I potentially could have shot at, but not any one of them was able to actually get a clear good you know a good shot opportunity so in my mind i'm thinking man like i gotta i gotta take advantage of one of these encounters i've had these opportunities i gotta take advantage and now i don't know a half hour later here comes four does they did the exact same thing that those two bucks did come down that hard edge work their way down to the bottom up the ridge into the pines so i'm feeling good about the setup i'm in but now i know okay this is a second group of deer that followed that same edge and i just don't have many good shot opportunities it was like so brief these little tiny windows so this is where sitting on the ground really helped out i just said all right we're gonna move we're just gonna bump up so i told the guys all right i'm gonna shift like 30 40 yards down the ridge to get a little bit closer to this and to have a little bit better vantage point to see down to this bottom so that I could see them not only when they're on the edge, but also when they drop down and then also see them for a longer period of time if they came up the opposite ridge by the new pines. So I'm still watching my three points all coming together just from a slightly different elevation and a slightly different angle. And we were able to stand up, walk 30, 40 yards down, sit down again and be in this new spot with a new vantage point in one minute versus the who knows half hour 45 minutes it would have taken to tear everything down walk over there set everything back up yeah. uh, especially when you've got all those cameras and stuff they bring it's a nightmare so <laughs> this uh this worked out well
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Well, you know, I guess at that point, there was one other thing interesting that happened. I'd made my move. I'd shifted down there. It's now later in the morning. And I remember looking at my phone and getting a text from you, Parker. You had some news for me. Do you want to describe what happened to you at that point? Yeah, uh, I had a great morning that morning. Um, it was really uh, like I, I don't know that you mentioned it before, but we had had hot weather the two days, the first two days. It was like oh, seventy yeah. degrees, really warm, and we finally got uh, a cold front that pushed through that day, and so. I really felt like deer after that storm system blew through, the cold front started coming in. Um, I really felt like we had a good chance that morning. So I kind of went into a, a high odds type area. Wind was going to be perfect for it. And uh, I was able to shoot probably the biggest buck I've killed this season. Uh, that's that same morning uh, that you where you had all the encounters. It was a really nice, heavy heavy mass eight point and uh, i saw i guess he was the 10th deer that i saw that morning just really good uh rut activity bucks small bucks chasing does i think it was about nine nine or nine thirty that i killed him and uh it was it was cool man i mean what was the setup just, so you uh you, you kind of mentioned you know or we've we've really kind of talked about uh, subtle terrain features going into these uh, convergence of habitat types, and it was it was really almost an identical setup to that first morning, uh, the spot that we went into that first morning. There's a a clear cut um, that meets some pines on 
private and then hardwoods on the public side with a with a very subtle draw that goes right up into that into that uh convergence of habitat types and so all the deer were either coming out of that or going up into that and uh obviously that time of year some of the does were hot and so there was i had a spike come through just grunting and you know carrying along and then uh right at nine uh i can't remember if that one was at nine or nine thirty it was fairly late in the morning though uh he came down uh came out of it came out of the the convergence and was going downhill in that that little subtle draw chasing or uh sent nose to the ground on one of those hot doe trails and uh i was able to shoot him right there i mean it was i could have shot him with a bow probably he was like 30 yards away man as a it was a nice buck and you and no i can't remember because i was busy with all my drama that day did you meet up with your dad and recover him together or did you bring him back to camp like how did that all go down so dad actually uh brought his his bass tracker uh with a 50 50 horsepower mercury on it so um while y'all were there i decided to retire the kayak for that week and hunt with dad using the boat because it was just a little bit easier and uh, i was able to get back into some of these spots that i don't get to hunt just a ton with my kayak and uh that was one of those spots uh and so dad came and dropped me off that morning he you know took me up dropped me off and he went back and hunted Oh, man, not, not as the crow flies, not very far away from where you were at, uh, but kind of in that same general area uh, spot that we call Kill Hill, where we've killed a lot of killed a lot of bucks at. So Dad came back and hunted that area, and then when I shot, uh, I believe he had Dad. You had some deer around you, right? So you you weren't able to come right then. Yeah, I had I had some deer that were just not fifteen yards from me. <laughs> Uh, there was a couple of does but and i was hoping a, a buck would come out on him but uh, he didn't but but yeah i was uh, i guess i was probably a mile and a half from where you were at yeah uh, for my fact when you shot i thought it was mark <coughs> i texted you and said i think mark just 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 took some shots i don't know why i guess the wind direction that day was just bringing in that that sound but you were a long ways away from me. yeah yeah, it was kind of weird. Um, cause you, I texted and said big buck down or something like that. And you said, I think Mark just shot one too. He shot three times. <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, I just shot three times. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but he, uh, so dad ended up coming around 11 o'clock and we drug it off, drug it off the mountain. So a funny, it was a funny thing that <laughs> happened right then because, uh, mm. There was another guy apparently that had also been dropped off on the same mountain by another guy in a boat. So there was zero boats parked in this spot and two guys hunting it. Um, and neither one of us knew that the other was there. And so when we come dragging that deer down off the mountain, we ended up walking, dragging that deer. I mean, right underneath this dude. Uh, and with really no way of knowing that anybody else was up there, um, which, I mean, I had been up there talking to my camera, and me and Dad had been talking the whole time, so it wasn't like, I mean, that guy's hunt was ruined probably a long time before <laughs> we walked underneath there. Uh, but it was uh, it, that was a kind of funny thing, and, and it was really one of the first times that that's ever happened, 
to me out there uh, of running into anybody else hunting. So, um, but yeah, it was cool. So we went back to camp, had our celebratory bowl of fruity pebbles, and fruity pebbles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You guys, uh, you guys are enjoying yourselves there, celebrating. <laughs> I was celebrating with you virtually. I was excited, but uh, had a long day ahead. I remember hearing about that. And then that was very soon after like midday when I said, okay, it's time to break into some snacks and me and the guys. So we're eating our lunches, eating, I don't know, chips and hostess treats and all that kind of stuff. And I remember we got into like the midday crazies where it must've been like one something, one, one fifteen, And we've been there a long time and uh, it just kind of worn on us. So I think at this point I was eating an apple and thinking to myself, man, these poor camera guys, they've got to wear headphones to monitor my audio. And so I just thought to myself, man, these poor guys are sitting here listening to me chomp on an apple in their in their heads. Like every time I eat anything, it's just crunching in their minds. Like they must just hate me so much. And I remember looking at them and like saying like, ah, I'm sorry, guys, this must be really annoying, isn't it? And then I'm like, we should have some fun with this. And so I was like, all right, let's play a game. So... You know, you gotta you gotta do a little something to spice things up out there sometimes with the with the crew. So I start humming songs quietly, but in their headphones, they can hear it very well. And so for like ten <laughs> minutes, I'm humming different songs, and they're trying to guess what song it is. And then we're like we're cracking up now, sitting there like a couple schoolgirls underneath trees humming to each other, trying to guess the songs. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, there's a deer, and coming down the ridge behind me coming down into that bottom towards the pine edge is is a buck pull up my bino see it's a buck see it's a shooter this is like a tighter and taller buck than the other ones we saw what i thought was like maybe a two-year-old and you know so right away i'm getting into position i remember grabbing my gun they're getting into position i kneel and lean my gun against this tree for stability i think i was kneeling or did i stand for this one i can't remember um but this buck comes, he's coming down a hill and he stopped and he stopped right between two trees. And I can just see between these two trees, like I can see like a four inch window, maybe, I don't know, very, very, very small window between these two trees. And I remember that's when I was able to get my binoculars and see what it was. And I remember at this moment thinking to myself, this buck's not getting away. Like I've had three different bucks come through. I haven't been able to get a good clear shot through the trees and all the movement and stuff. And this time, like, there's no way I'm not going to shoot this buck. So I remember thinking, like, you're going to make this work. So that buck stood there for a while. I watched him. Everyone's in position. He's, I don't know, 150 yards, something like that away, but kind of angling towards me, maybe less, maybe 100 yards, something like that. And sure enough, he eventually started moving again after he stood there for a long time. I don't know if he hurt us or just was doing that kind of thing the bucks do where they stop and just take in their surroundings but eventually he started moving again and he's dropping down this hill and he moves down almost to the very bottom and I there was a couple times where I, I I'm trying to remember what specifically I was using my rifle this was a rifle so I had my rifle so I must have like clicked off my safety I feel like I have this memory of clicking off my safety and telling the guys alright I'm going to take a shot and then he started moving again and now he stopped a second time and this time he stopped and again, he's behind trees, but I remember seeing him and seeing him stop behind the trees and then thinking to myself, well, that's the back of his front leg right there. So what I'm seeing, this opening I'm seeing, that's the vitals. 
So if I put it right there, even though I couldn't see his front part and I couldn't see his back part, I'm like, I'm looking at his vitals because I could just catch the edge of his leg. So I'm like, all right, that's it. I can take this shot through this gap. And again, I'm not not going to get a shot at this deer is what I've been telling myself. So I lined up and took the shot. And he blasts out of there running, racking another shell. And he's not, you know, he, he's not looking hit. He's running off, but at the same time, you know, sometimes you just don't know in the heat of the moment. But I'm like, man, he's still going pretty good. Why is he going so good? I just kept waiting for him to show a sign of being hit, and he didn't. So he got up the other side of this ridge, and I had been trying to get back on him. And I would get back on him, and I squeeze off another round. But nothing happens. There's just, like, no shot. Nothing. And then he runs off. And I then look. I un, I try to rack that shell out and, and for whatever reason I still don't know what caused it but it never racked a shell in when I when I tried to um, put another one in there for that second shot so something happened got jammed up in some kind of way so I took a shot and had no round in there no round to be able to actually take advantage of that second round and so there's there's all that and I don't know what happened I don't know did I miss it did I get a bad hit on it why did he run off the way he ran off? I asked the cameraman, like, man, let's look and see what happened here. Um, just a lot of uncertainty, as oftentimes it can be when those things happen fast and crazy like that. To make a long story short, we look at the footage. It it doesn't look like there's an impact. Um, but at the same time, he jumped. You never know. So we're going to go down there and look. We go down there to the shot of the site, and within moments of getting to where I thought that buck was, I said, oh. I know what happened. And right there on that tree that he was standing behind, on the last inch on the outside, there's the hole in the tree and my bullet lodged into the tree. If I had been an inch and a half to the right, it would have been perfect shot, dead deer. But instead, my bullet found an Alabama oak tree. And uh, (laughs) that deer... I've shot lots of those. I've shot many... (laughs) Alabama oaks, and uh, they don't taste good. No, but <laughs> no, this one didn't. So I was pretty bummed out, super bummed out. Um, you know, just just was very disheartening. But uh, we walked hey, back Mark, up. Can I can I jump in here just for yeah, a second? Please. I, I I I'm sorry to jump in, but you say you shot one of those Alabama oak trees. I have happened to shoot the same oak tree twice. So. Uh, <laughs> Um, I, I, that's video footage of that, that Parker has, uh, I did the same tree twice. So well, yeah, I'm sorry. I just had to throw that in. I do feel better. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that makes me feel a little better for sure. Oh uh, yeah. You know, there, there's a bunch of them out there and, uh, I have not, I didn't have one buck on this, not one deer that was taking its time. That was the rut. So, I mean, that's not too terribly uncommon, but all the deer I saw on this trip were cruising fast, even the does. Like, there was nothing lollygagging around. There was nothing nibbling its way along. There was nothing taking its time sniffing. Like, everything was on the move. Um, I don't know if that's unique or if that's how they always are out here or if it was just because of the rut. But, I mean, there was no slow shot opportunities. Everything was progressing very quickly. And, um, and I just had to try to take advantage when I could. Didn't work out. But, uh, that one, that one stung. We went up back to the top of the ridge, and I remember telling the guys, well, you know, that wasn't what any of us wanted. Sorry, guys. But uh, on the bright side, 
we did just see another buck. We've seen three bucks come through cruising through here, so at least the spot's good. Uh, let's see if anything else will do it. And uh, we got settled back in our same spots. Uh, I just remember sitting there, just kind of, kind of uh, in my own head, knocking myself up the head and thinking, like, what could he done differently? Should he uh, waited till he cleared those trees, or just you know, should you have aimed a little bit further back, knowing that you had more, you know more give or more uh more forgiveness if i would have aimed a little bit further back on the lungs instead of like right up towards the heart like you should have done that why'd you aim close to there and did you pull the shot you know all that kind of stuff you do after a bad shot um but as i'm doing all that i remember sitting there and i just remember hearing this from across the way and instantly it was like that was leaves like scraping leaves and i looked across the way and then and as I hear that noise, though, this time I see a leg, like a big black thing moving. Sure enough, across that ridge, the same ridge that Buck had ran across and up and out of, he'd ran, you know, the one I hit the tree on, he he ran up this other ridge and went into those that hard, mature pine edge. Well, now, coming off of that same ridge, here's a buck again across the way, and he's making a scrape. So I'm, and this is at three something o'clock, somewhere in that three o'clock hour, if I remember right. So holy crap, this is buck number four coming through here. Tell the guys, we got a buck over there. Let's get in position. I remember grabbing my backpack, moving to the other side of the tree and putting my backpack on the ground in front of me. This time I'm sitting on my butt, my knees up, and I put the backpack in between my two knees. And my backpack that I was using was like a bigger framed backpack so it had like a hard top so i remember thinking this is going to give me a, a better steady aiming position i popped my gun up on that looked at this little buck and it was a seven pointer nothing big but a seven pointer and a buck i was going to shoot so i remember seeing the buck knowing he was probably generally in range but he was moving again he made that scrape but not before i was able to get in position now he's working down his way towards me and to make a long story short, he works his way down almost to the bottom until he finally stops and turns. He turns broadside. I tell the guys, all right, here we go. I pop it off safety. And then he spins and starts going the other way again. And now I remember thinking, okay, do I do I wait? He, he spun almost 180 degrees around, starts going the other way. Now he's going away from me. And then he turned and kind of opened up. He was quartering away and opened it up enough. And I thought, okay. And there's all these trees down there. It's just like he's in and out and in and out of available shooting lanes. Just when he turned, quartering away, I said, all right, that's it. Took the shot. This time, you could see instantly he'd been hit. But it wasn't like the pile driving hit where he where his like front legs drop and he's like a snowplow. Uh, this was like hit, jumped straight up, spun backwards, and then went running off the direction that the first buck had come from uh, off to our right up and over this hill, just tearing out of there. Definitely hit, definitely hit hard, uh, but didn't see him drop within sight. Uh, again, not sure of, you know, exactly where the shot was. Look at the footage. The footage shows that the hit was further back than where I wanted. Now, I thought I'd be a little back. I wanted to be a little bit back is that quartering away angle, but this is further back than that. So we wait. I don't know. Not as long as we should have. But an hour something after that, we're like, well, let's just go look for blood and see what the situation is. And it it did look like when he ran off, he got over this little rise, and it just looked like he was about to topple over. He was definitely hurting. So we go over there, 
don't find a lot of blood, but you can see pretty somewhat clearly where it looks like he like kicked up the leaves and was running. So I fell prey to this thing that all of us are tempted to do sometimes, I think, which is you just want to see that dead deer. Like you just want it to be done. You want to know that you got him. And I missed that deer earlier in the day. So I was, I had this like overwhelming, like, Oh no, not like another thing, not go right. I just got to find him. I, I want that feel good. I need the feel good. What I should have done is I should have said, all right, the shot wasn't perfect, um, but he's going to die. Let's just get out of here and wait longer. But instead, I was like, ah, let's just let's just look over this next hill. And sure enough, we go over that next hill and bump the buck. He had not gone down yet. Goes kind of running, shuffling off. This is now at right at dark, so I can't go any further. Um, I was able to see that it was the buck going off, but couldn't get another shot. At that point, all right, let's back out. Give this deer a little more time. And to to take, you know, seven hours and compress it into 30 seconds, we went back to camp, met up with you guys, had dinner, hung out. Parker, you had a buddy who has a tracking dog, and he was excited about going out and doing this. So I thought, well, why not bring him out here just to be on the safe side? It hasn't been a good blood trail. Let's get him out here and just be sure that we find this deer. And so late that night, your buddy came out, hopped in the boat, drove over to this place, hiked up to the top of this hill, went to where the shot site was. He brings his two dogs. They go tearing down the trail and easy as pie. I mean, so easy. Those dogs walked right up on that buck. Not, I don't know, 80 yards from where I last saw him. And, uh, I found me my Alabama public land buck dead as a doorknob. (laughs) It was, that was cool, man. That was such a cool moment. And, uh, I remember, I remember at first when those dogs got on the trail, on the track, we got up there and dogs tore off into one direction. And you said, uh, that's not the direction at all that the deer went. Yeah. And I could sense the, like, oh man, we're not finding this deer. That was kind of in your face um, because the dogs went just completely different. But what Justin said, uh, he, he was, Justin's a tracker. Justin Moser, super good, good guy, and he's got great dogs. He's like, "Hey, it's okay. They're just working it out. They're they're just getting their bearings. They're just these the they're not going necessarily on blood. They're going on scent. He's got one dog that's more of a ground scent dog, and another dog that's more of a wind scent dog, and they just work out. They work it out together. And but I could definitely tell like there was a moment of, oh man, they're not even going the right direction. <laughs> and then and then on that GPS. He said, "Well, they're really hanging out in this one area. They usually won't do that unless uh, unless they found something." And I remember you, uh, Mark, you looked over and you kind of said, "Well, fingers crossed. Yep. Well, that's it." <laughs> and uh, sure enough, man. I mean, it, I mean, I, what did it take? Like five minutes for the dogs oh, to find that deer? So fast, so it fast. It was quick. Yeah, it's, it was quick. They're amazing. I've I've got a buddy in Michigan who has one, and so oftentimes. You know, anytime I shoot a deer and we're not in a rush, I'll call them over just to give the dog practice and just to see it go. And it's so cool to see how they work. And the uh-huh. they are really incredible animals, what they can do, and a, a great tool to have as a deer hunter, that's for sure. In this case, I mean, it wasn't a good blood trail. Um, so they definitely shortened our night. You know, we would have been probably walking circles trying to find that deer. Um, but they went right to it. So it was great. And I, and I think I think a lot of people get really that that's something that I thought was a really cool thing for you in the South because like tracking dogs down here most of the time they don't cost anything 
Like they don't ask for any money. The guys just like doing it. Uh, but you give them tips and stuff, and so it's pretty good. But um, it's a really, it, it's pretty popular down here for guys to have tracking dogs, and so it made the the whole experience. You know, you got your nice southern experience. Nobody wants to call a tracking dog, but you think of it this way: like, you know, that shot was far back, right? Um, and we probably could have found that deer the next morning. Uh, you know, you get five guys on that. I mean, it wasn't that far from where you were at. We probably could have found it, but that's five, six, seven hours longer that that deer is just basically sitting there and the meat's just running with every hour. Um, the dogs made it quick. We were able to get it out there, get it gutted, get it, uh, cleaned up and we were able to eat backstrap that next night. And so, you know, I think, I think, people have this really wacky perspective on tracking dogs. I saw a post about it yesterday where a guy was like, people have lost the art of tracking because they're so dependent on tracking dogs. It's like, like I've said 15 times in this podcast, I want to be efficient. And those dogs knows are a whole lot more efficient than I am at tracking a deer. And so I thought it was cool, man. I love watching them work. Oh yeah. It was, it was terrific and very, very thankful. We had them there. Like you said, made it, a much speedier recovery, and uh, we were eating him the next day, which was a darn good meal there, Fireside. I'll tell you what. Oh, it was um, so good. good. Yeah, <laughs> and and like I told you guys, that was um, that was the first year-and-a-half-old buck I had shot in 13 years, and I'd had like a lot of apprehension around that this season. Um, this had been a year where I was doing all these different things, going to all these different places, and I remember that first hunt. I was in Washington, D.C. I'm like, man, I'm holding out for three-year-olds still. Like, I, I usually hold out for four-year-olds, but I thought, okay, this year I'll, I'll, I'll do a three-year-old. And then after that first hunt, I started thinking, man, A, that's not terribly realistic, and B, you're not really going to get a whole lot of the experience if you're just sitting around waiting for a buck that really doesn't exist in a lot of these places. Or if he does exist, you know, it's very, very, very hard to get your eyes on him in three days or four days and at the most. Um, you're going to miss out on so much. Uh, you know, going to Nebraska, if I was waiting for a four-year-old buck, I might never get the chance to go chase after one of the decoy and see one up close. If I was in Arkansas waiting for a four-year-old buck, you know, I might never actually get to see if I could kill one on the ground in a saddle over oaks. Uh, if I was in Alabama waiting for a four-year-old, I'd never get to kayak one out and see what that moment felt like, all that stuff. Um, and I realized, I mean, I was working my tail off and... My my thing, why I had chosen personally to try to target older bucks was that I was trying to find a new way to challenge myself and a way to, you know, encourage growth as a hunter. I wanted this new challenge would force me into learning new things and trying new things. And that's why I'd originally taken up that goal. Um, but now I was challenging myself and growing as a new hunter in this new way that didn't require holding out for a big buck. It just required me go to some crazy off the wall place and hunt in a crazy off the wall way and try to do it in a short amount of time. And I was getting just as much of a challenge and a whole bunch of new enjoyment and doing it, trying to kill any buck. Um, so I, I gotten to this place where I did not, I wouldn't have thought I would get to that point at the beginning of the year where I was just as excited put my hands on that year and a half old seven pointer in Alabama as I was getting my hands on any three or four or five year old buck that I've killed over the years in other places. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it was just a, this year in general has been just a really good 
reminder to me about what hunting's all about and how it is different for everybody and how everyone's got their own hill to climb. Everyone's got their own challenges. Everyone's got their own adventures. Everyone's got their own things that are going to get them fired up. And uh, who am I to say that my way is better than anybody else's or that anyone else's is better than mine? Um, and this this whole thing was just such a great a great illustration of that come to life and, and getting to spend some time in your neck of the woods and see how you guys do it and see the habitat and the deer and the culture and, and everything. I mean, it was, it was so cool. And and to have that cherry on top of, of actually getting a shot at the buck and putting them on a kayak and floating on the lake with you the next day, Parker, and eating that backstrap that night. I mean, that stuff, that, uh, that stuff will just stick with you for a long, long time and getting to eat the fruity pebbles at one thirty in the morning, the fruity pebbles, the, the, the McDonald tradition of a bowl of fruity pebbles after a successful kill. I mean, that's, that's just too cool. Uh, I'd be, I would have been a poorer man if I hadn't had a shot at that buck and got to experience those things. So, uh, I'm just, I'm glad that you guys had me down. I'm glad you encouraged me to, um, you know, think about any any buck being a buck worth shooting i'm glad i did it i'm uh i'm just a happy camper here sitting at home remembering that alabama experience it was it was truly terrific we uh we had a great time mark and uh kind of kind of what dad said before you know at the beginning of the podcast uh we were just so impressed by by you and the crew meat eater guys the conversations that we had just the camaraderie the whole thing man like i said i was i was bummed out when it was over because i had such a good time so anytime y'all want to come back and shoot another year and a half old buck or if you want to up your standards next time you come (laughs) down we that's fine too and uh our camp's always going to be open to you guys well i appreciate it i do appreciate it uh randall i gotta give you a moment to shine here you filled the tag. You filled the tag a little little after I left, didn't you? You want to share that story real quick? Well, I I, I had taken the shot there uh, at at during rutcation and had five bucks chasing a doe and and thought I hit the deer. Still think I, I nicked it, but uh, never did recover that deer. Um, but we got home. Parker came out and uh parker came out to texas and we did a deer hunt on my property i usually on my property i'm not going to shoot spikes necessarily but i've had a number of chances to shoot some deer on my property this year just just hadn't pulled the trigger and out there by myself or whatever and parker was here so i had a spike come in we got to celebrate a, a great spike and uh uh just a great hunt had a great time and and uh uh, Parker even, uh, shot a, a super deer out here. So we, we've had a good, good year. Sounds like it. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. Parker, you're, you've had, been on tear. It's been awesome. Had fruity pebbles that, that time too. We also <laughs> went and had some fruity pebbles after that. So that was a, that yep. was a great deal. That's awesome. That's awesome. So is there anything, is there anything that we haven't touched on that needs to be said for someone, if we're, if in some kind of way we're trying to encapsulate a little, like a time capsule of what it's like to hunt down in this part of Alabama this time of year, this kind of thing, um, my my hope was to get a really nice snapshot of that kind of experience, and 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 now with this podcast, trying to translate that experience into a little two hour nugget of it. Is there anything we left out, Parker, that needs to be said, that needs to be touched on? 
that needs to be mentioned? Anything else? I, I think we would be failing mm-hmm. in this podcast if we didn't mention that we wrapped up the whole trip with the, with a. <laughs> A meal at Waffle House. <laughs> yes. I was gonna say that too. The Waffle House experience. <laughs> That's a good point. We did get Waffle House. It was just what it was just what we needed after a long day out there. But I, I gotta I gotta admit to you one thing, Parker. <laughs> we ate that Waffle House with you guys, and then we went to our hotel, and then we went to the hotel restaurant. And we got more food that night at the hotel too. <laughs> we were we were real. Well, hungry. I was disappointed, Mark, because. You went to Waffle House and you got a burger, and I was like, I mean, it's still a Waffle House burger. It's still grilled on the same, you know, grill that all that greasy stuff is. I mean, so you still got the taste of Waffle House, I guess, but you didn't get a waffle. I know and that might have been a mistake. That isn't no, not might. There's not really a might about it. Like you got if if you don't get Waffle House on a regular basis, you got to get a waffle yeah. at Waffle. House. That was a rookie move. That was a rookie yeah, move. Yeah, you know. I, had, I mean, I hadn't been to a Waffle House since spring break of college in Florida, like 16 years ago or something. So I just was not up on my Waffle House ordering uh, guidelines and just really, really screwed the pooch on this one. <laughs> but you, you know, need to do. So what we should have done is set up the Waffle House experience the same way as we set up the deer hunt experience. So you should have just interviewed me like, okay, what do I do? What do I order at Waffle House? What am I looking for? Just set it up the same way, and I think you would have uh, been less disappointed. Yeah, man, that's season two of the show. Next year, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah, food culture. Yep, food culture. Well, uh, thank you, Randall. Thank you, Parker. Uh, Parker, can you give folks a rundown of where they can see – the things you're doing, you've got a lot of cool content out there for Southern deer hunters. What can they find and where can they find it? Yeah. Um, I do the Southern ground hunting podcast and YouTube channel. So you can pretty much just search Southern ground hunting and it'll pull up on YouTube and, uh, anywhere podcasts are listened to, uh, the podcast is through the sportsman's nation. So a lot of your listeners probably familiar with that. Uh, where Johnson, old Dan Johnson, started that and uh so i'm on there on instagram and facebook it's at southern ground hunting um and then on uh go wild i have a a gear page on go wild so you can check that out but yeah that's that's pretty much it awesome man well it's great stuff i've enjoyed listening to the podcast and seeing your videos on youtube you're you're doing a good job and obviously the proof's in the pudding you know what you're doing out there in the woods there's been a lot of deer who uh eh seeing their tombstone go on the ground because you've been up in a tree nearby. <laughs> so, <laughs> so keep it, up thank keep you so much. the good work, man. And thank you again to both you and Reginald. <laughs> Thanks, Mike, for having me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to do it. Thank you for tuning in. Appreciate you spending some time here. I hope this is inspired. And until next time, thank you and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today 
at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.